Sonic State.com. Right, hello and welcome to Sonic Talk number 47, which is uh, recorded on the 23rd of May, going live on the 24th of May, that's a Thursday, 2007. Um, we've got a number of people with us this week. I'm glad to hear we've got uh, Rich Hilton, who's back with us. Uh, Rich Hilton, of course, um, working with Sheik, Nile Rogers, etc. And uh, you're just back from Hawaii, where you did a gig. Is that right? Yeah, that's it. Was it was a tough one? I got to tell you. Wow. The weather was weather was perfect all week long. We all brought our wives and significant others with us and uh, entertained a room full of uh, extremely partying people. So, w- what sort of gig is that? Is that like a kind of uh, is that a private gig for some wealthy bankers kind of thing? Uh, it was yes, it was a private show for Amway of Japan, actually. Amway of Japan. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Right, and how many people do you play to in those kind of things? I guess this was probably about eight hundred to a thousand people. In oh, this right. Case. So you know, not not kind of like a private audience with with somebody. So you get a bit of a vibe and stuff. Oh, yeah, yeah, sure. The audience had some power and some vibe to it. And, you know, it was all sit-down dinner for them. So it tends to be an extremely large sit-down dinner gathering, usually, one of these things. All right, cool. Oh, yeah, that must be great, though, because, I mean, I know that every time I go to somebody's birthday party and any of my friends do the DJ, whenever the sort of chic section comes on, it's like you can't get people off, on, off the dance floor, whereas the rest of the time you're struggling. So it must be just kind of like Christmas Eve every time you do a gig. Well, the people do love the show. And yeah. recognize all the songs, even though quite often going in, they don't associate them with chic or know necessarily what to expect from a chic show. When they get there, they find it's pretty much all hit songs that they know and they really enjoy it. Fantastic. So have you got any of the original lady singers still with you? Uh, no, actually, the only actual original surviving guy in the band now is Niall, because unfortunately, his two significant partners in the band have passed away and uh but there are people in the band like myself who've been in it nearly 20 years which is considerably longer than any of the original members were in it actually so so who gets to play those fabulous bass lines most recently we have a nice gentleman named barry johnson from queens new york who plays the heck out of those bass lines wow uh in the recent past we had a fellow named jerry barnes who was also brilliant so do you get, like, the cream of the uh, the session musician crop, or, you know, wh- what kind of personnel come through? The personnel stays pretty consistent in general, and uh, it is a pretty stunning bunch of players with whom I feel very privileged to get to gig every so often. Uh, it's a really, really nice bunch of folks, too. We get along really well, and people always comment uh, after the shows how much we seem to be enjoying each other as much as the music and the audience. Well, it must be great because, I mean, also, I, I guess you don't have to rehearse like crazy because you must sort of most of it's just the stagecraft, I'd imagine. Is that right? Well, yes and no. People ask me if I have trouble making decisions. Um, <laughs> uh, to the extent that the songs aren't terribly complicated on some level, that's true. But it's actually not easy to play this material well because people will tend to overplay into the music. Oh, yeah, and sure. Fill- fill all the spaces which actually are what make it work yeah there is some rehearsal involved for sure um but now that we all know all of this material and have been playing it for so many years it's rare that we need to rehearse just to do a chic show it's usually we'll rehearse when we have a guest artist coming in or want to work new material into the show so does niall phone you like like james brown if you kind of drop a beat we jo- we joke about we joke about that when somebody gets on the bus late we go fifty dollars. <laughs> <laughs> and there's another there's another joke about you know how one of us will say twenty five dollars. I don't like what you're thinking. <laughs> and what about if you're doing a major tax dodge? Is that just prison? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe so. Maybe so. Anyway, Rich, I'm glad to have you back. Uh, let's move on to uh, John Musgrave, who's also back with us. Um, good to hear your voice. Well, I haven't heard it yet, but let's hear it now. Hello. How's <laughs> hey. it going? Have you had a good week? I have. I've, well, I, I've been transferring from one Macintosh to another Macintosh. Does that mean you've finally gone Intel? Yes. And how, how many plugins that you thought would work don't? Well, I did, to be honest, I did actually make a list. Uh, that's terribly anal. I did make a list before I did it to work out which ones wouldn't work. Yeah, no, it's no, that's and, essential, uh, I think. And uh, obviously, Spectrasonics, <clears throat> a couple of those being quite important ones. But actually, the process has been has taken a whole week, I reckon. Really, I found it very yeah. easy because I just kind of connected one to the other and said, "Copy everything, please." And yeah. It, 
and it basically did it. I just had to it reauthorize did. a couple of things, but yeah, it did that. that the, the migration assistant. It took about three hours, but yeah, yeah. It did it. But no, it was more a case of me finding, even down to tiny little applications, things that run like dongles and all that kind of stuff, oh, which yeah, needed yeah. updating to Intel versions. So it, it's been really kind of slow process, but. It's done now, pretty much. So you must be about so. due for a power supply or hard drive failure, then. <laughs> Cheers. <laughs> well, you know. I'll be, I'll and be the buying ne- my Apple Care package tomorrow. You're backing up, presumably, as well, once you've done it. That's what I always do. You know, you set the system up and go, right, it works, snapshot, now put it in the cupboard, just in case. Yeah. I'm so, actually, to be honest, I'm surprised by how loud the hard drive in, in it is. Really? It's, um, yeah, it's got a Seagate in it. Well, we've got one in the office. We've got a Quad 2. And, it, and mind you, it does nothing most of the time. But when it's doing video, it's—I don't think it's got Seagate. Mm. I don't know what it's got in it, but I'll—I'll uh, I'll check the dB rating. Yeah, sorry. All, all I'd say is it is substantially quieter than G five. Oh yeah, all those things like noise, Hoover's. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm thinking. I'm trying to read a CD. You leave me alone. Okay, and uh, of course, Dave Spears, G four Software. Hello. How are you doing? Thanks for holding on there. I'm, I hear you've got a um, another U, uh, Universal Binary Day. Uh, yeah, today. Last one. Hey. Although no one knows it yet. We've actually we put them up late last night and uh, we're doing a few tweaks. So they are there, although um, we haven't announced anything yet. Oh, right. Okay, cool. Well, that must be a, a load off. Do you have kind of like a, a special song you play, you know, on days like this or anything? Well, we're going to put um, a thing on the site, a message on the site saying mission accomplished. But then I realised the last Herbert who did that was wrong. Ah. Uh, uh. Yeah. <laughs> So you mean you haven't announced yet the release of the brand new Universal Binary Mini Monster? No. Maybe you could put it on your uh, Hiltonius.com blog, Rich. I'd say it's about time I put something on that blog. <laughs> okay. I see um, Niles' name on the old, uh, on the database. Yeah, yeah, I got it on his uh, MacBook Pro. Cool. Excellent. And, of course, Mark Tinley. Sorry to keep you waiting there, Mark. You've been very quiet, so I'm only assuming that um, you, you are still there. I am still here. I've been deliberately very quiet because I always talk over people, so I'm trying especially hard not to. How have you? How's your week been? Then, Mark, been good? It's been pretty good, yeah. Apart from one disastrous thing, uh, Nick rang me up on Friday. I can't say which band he's from. No, but he asked me to um, go and record a single with his band and Justin Timberlake, and said, "Was I available on Sunday and Monday?" I'm not. I wasn't. Oh. I, had, I was doing Fields of the Nephilim, so I had to turn them down. You had to turn down Justy. So, Justin Timberlake, yeah. That was a fine... You, so you could have been in the studio for quite some time with the vested one. I could have been, yeah. And oh. I said no. That's just the way it goes. Well, I, I'm not sure whether to offer commiserations or congratulations. I quite like Fields of the Nephilim, actually. Maybe you could organise... You know, if you got in there, you could have organised some kind of duet with uh, the Fields, <laughs> the Fields and Justin. That would be fantastic, wouldn't it? As long as as long as Justin or Timberland aren't Christians, I suppose it could be a, a bit of a problem. Because they're 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 rather dark in character, aren't they? The, Very the, dark. The it could be Nephilim. quite interesting. Actually, I was over at their site having a look because um, I, I was checking through some of the links that I put up for last week, and they've got some really sort of hot video introduction stuff there. They've spent a lot of money on kind of making themselves look as evil as possible, haven't they? <laughs> well, Carl's really good at sound design. If you listen to their most recent album. All of those sort of background sound design stuff is him, and it's very uh, sort of filmic, like quite, you know, really cool horror movie sort of stuff, you know, sound effects and stuff in the tune. Isn't that a dream gig for to, to do a, a horror film soundtrack? I'd love to do that. I'd Break out the pyramid. Yeah, anybody done one? <laughs> Rich, you must, you, you, must have had passing, you must have passed a horror film somewhere along the way. Never have worked on a horror film. Good. Well, I can't believe collectively. I don't think I have either. I think um, I'm sure it'd be quite a laugh. I mean, it must be quite difficult to not be a total pastiche because, I mean, obviously, you know, you're going to be doing dun 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 and variations of it, aren't you? Really, and kind of augmented and diminished chords, and you know, you, you, you it must be very hard to not do that, but still be sinister. I've been making some really interesting noises for various different things. Like some stretching screams and putting them through lots of reverb and stuff. Oh, I right, one well, for the find, fields. I'll try and find one in a minute, yeah. In the meantime, um, perhaps we'll, uh, we'll move on to one of the topics. And the first thing in my list is this uh, Sony PSP game, which is called Traxpad, um, which is spelt with double X. Did anyone see that video? There was a kind of trailer of this chap mm. um, 
I mean, it's weird because obviously m- most video games get kind of, you know, almost filmic trailers made for them, and they're really, but not this one. It was a guy in a room with a kind of not even a close mic on him by the sound of it, kind of demonstrating yeah. it. And I was, I was surprised, seeing as it was actually an audio product, and that's the only one I could see. So, um, but it's it's released by IDOS, who I think are quite a big PSP game person. Is that right? um, Games House? Let me just play you a bit of this demo a minute, and you'll be. All, it doesn't sound too bad. So they're just using basically button mashing and a sound kit that's provided. We've laid down our first beat. Here comes something a bit more. So now we've swapped out our sound kit, got a new bank in there, and let's see what we could do with a more complex sound in mind. The metronome keeping time. Jolly good. And we'll start laying it in at the top of the measure. Again, it's just the the four buttons of the PSP, each mapped with two sounds. So it sounds like you can run samples and stuff on it. I mean, I know, you know, as as kind of perhaps um, people who work with kind of audio pro gear, we might not be kind of thinking much of it, but considering it's actually a handheld device that enables you to arrange samples, it could could be kind of quite a good game, you'd think. Or not a game, but a good a good kind of tool for for people and you can record your own samples in it as well by the looks of things he said he said about halfway through i'm just going to use the microphone to record a sample and he recorded something that went dink and within seconds he was actually playing it back on the machine i thought that was highly unlikely and for the you know for the reasons of displaying the product they probably uh didn't show the editing of it or well, maybe, I don't know, maybe, it, maybe it's it maybe it's auto top and tail yeah things, it might yeah. do or you, you set the amount of time that you're going to sample for so that there's no wastage or whatever. But, yeah, I mean, that sort of stuff is obviously going to have to be, you know, a little more hands-on or, you know, automated so make it more difficult. But you could certainly put a load of breaks together and a few drum sounds. I mean, it comes it allows you to mix virtual sequences, drum machines, keyboards, and export your creations into WoW and MP3 formats. Basically, you've got a, a thousand sounds, and by the looks of thing, you can save your own as well. I, I don't know, I'm not very familiar with the PSP, but can you hook it up to a, a computer and kind of, load and save things onto memory and, and storage and what have you. It's got a USB on it. Right. He doesn't really go into that too much. I mean, like I say, the trailer's not particularly um, happening. He does say at one point, exotic instruments you have not yet been exposed to, and I thought, hmm, I might have to go and listen to one. Yeah, what could that be? That smacks of uh, that sort of one of those higher-numbered higher general MIDI banks, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> But, you know, we could laugh, and indeed we will, and have, and do. But it's actually, it could be cool. What do you think? I think you hit the nail on the head when you sort of said game, because it's just, if if I was sitting on a train, I'd rather be doing that than playing a game, to be honest. Yeah, you might actually get something useful out of it. And I suppose, I mean, if you've got a mic, and you could sort of immediately kind of loop up environmental stuff, so you could be, you know, in a gig or whatever, I don't know, somewhere where there's some noise, and you could essentially kind of make some beats out of it and... And the, the, I really like the way that the interface kind of throbbed. <laughs> I don't know, maybe it's just me, but it kind of it made it feel kind of quite perhaps more tactile than it actually was. I mean, essentially what, I can, what he was saying is, you know, you use the buttons to trigger sounds and you've got two banks of four, I think, per kit. So it's not a huge amount, but if you get the samples right, that could be kind of quite funky. It looks like I something I'd probably quite like using. You, you say you buy sure it, Dave? Bu- yep. It's a, yet another way to annoy people on the plane on the way to land. <laughs> Dude, what's the export sort of format? Uh, Wav and MP3. But the whole lot as, as a blend, yeah. It was no I think so. I mean, I, don't, I he didn't. I mean, that's the thing. He doesn't go into a huge level of detail on it, and because it's not, it's not actually out till end of June, by the looks of things. I mean, I don't think it's going to be like going to be an equivalent to Logic or anything. But um, certainly, you know, a simple sampling drum machine seems to be something that it might be capable of, and it's got auto-quantize and what have you, as he demonstrated at the beginning of the video, just by sort of thrashing around on the buttons. And you can export it as a ringtone. Wow. <laughs> Most important. <laughs> but there are, I'd prefer, if I had a, a daughter or son, I'd prefer they did that than perhaps um, gruesome shoot-em-ups or, you know, whatever. But he seemed, he seemed to be adding and subtracting beats into the step sequencer as it was going along as well, and I liked the way the step sequence was running, sort of racing past, and you... It seemed like it was almost like a game in that. Nobody seems to have successfully made a kind of crossover music stroke platform game. You know, wish them luck. And uh, like I said, uh, June the 27th, it's projected date, and you can pre-order it from, you know, various places. And I saw it, it was about forty one ninety nine or something like that. Bargain. Well, Dave, if you get it, perhaps you can let us know what it was like. Perhaps, you can, yeah, perhaps you can write us a new theme tune. <laughs> <laughs> 
the other one which I thought was absolutely brilliant, and I don't know anything about it, was I've just got it written down as loud equals bad. And I found this on Create Digital Music, which is a blog that's got lots of interesting things about creating digital music. And it's uh, all I can say, it's a video posted by somebody called Loudness War on YouTube. And it's the only video that they've sent that they've plugged in. And um, it's what it basically is, is a picture of a waveform. I'm not sure. Does anyone recognize the editing environment? No, no, no. I don't know what it is. It's obviously some sort of uh, audio editor. I'll, I'll play you a little bit, and you can see what it's like. This is how the so-called loudness war is damaging the sound quality of modern CDs. First, I'll play an example of a track from 1989. Notice the clarity and punch of the drums. Since the two drum hits are already maximum volume, if we want the track louder on the recording, we have to take the quieter bits and turn them up. If this track had been released in 2006, someone would probably have insisted that it be this loud. I'll leave it there because I won't. Uh, I don't want to give it all away because. Um... It, but it's it's a fantastic illustration of how we've sort of fallen into the trap of everything being normalised and maximised for, well, it's either radio or a, a, a listening in an environment where there's a background noise. So, you know, because otherwise, you know, you play, you, you take your tape to a disco, for instance, you know, in the early days, and obviously it had not been mastered or anything, and somebody puts it on and it sounds rubbish compared to the other ones because it's all so quiet. But it just demonstrates so fantastically the sort of destructive nature of that and I don't know if whether you'll be able to hear the differences between between those, you know, once this is fi- encoded down to MP3 and whatever. But um, wasn't it just so simple and direct? I thought it was a great video. I really did. I was looking around at various discussions about it, and one thing that people were saying was, you know, maybe what they should do is have you have two mastered versions. One is for uh, release to radio and you know TV and stuff where places where it has to be as loud. And then another one, which is kind of domestic album listening. So you would listen to it in the sort of way that it was intended because obviously the mastering engineer, you, but just by those two normalization examples, <laughs> let alone EQ, can change the nature and the perception of it so drastically. But this is what it used to be like in the 70s with 7-inch and 12-inch albums and singles because the 12-inch had a limitation on volume because obviously if you turn it up too loud, the grooves will run into each other. Right. And albums and singles sound significantly different. I think that's I mean, actually that, a good idea. I mean, there was an element in that with vinyl with regards to how much you fit on the side, isn't there, obviously? Yeah, I mean, we don't have to... The more you want to fit exactly, on, the smaller yeah. the grooves get and the quieter it gets. Well, and also, yeah. I mean, when, you, when, you, uh, when we used to go and get 12 inches cut, you know, it's, you know, how much bass you can get in there without the needle jumping out of the groove, you know, all that kind of stuff, and how low it goes, because obviously if it's... I think the irony is, and I've used to sort of try and destroy audio by turning it down so quiet that it would get to the point... I mean, this is before the bit-crushing plugins came along, like uh, bit-crusher and decimator and all that. I used to turn it down in logic and down and down and down and down to like 0.1% of a normalised file, which would be 100%. And even if you turn something down to 0.1% digitally and then turn it back up, it still retains a good amount of information for you to be able to identify what that audio is. Right. So the amount of headroom between 100% and 0.1% or less means there's no need to be turning this stuff up this loud or compressing it to this degree because, you know, there's the availability of sort of another 96 to be of clarity. I would agree from an aesthetic point of view, but from a purely sort of fit-for-purpose it's almost you just don't have any choice i mean rich you must find this i mean you're working stuff all the time and i mean the final master stage you know you've got to kind of run with the big fishes haven't you you've got to be within a certain kind of dynamic range or your stuff sounds quiet certainly this has changed the way i work and the way i use compression along the length of the process ironically along the life of my time in audio we've gone from media that play back uh fairly limited dynamic ranges to a media system that will in fact support an extraordinarily broad range of dynamics and in per, in, at the same time the culture has moved towards this more and more compressed and lower fidelity kind of medium with regards to AAC and MP3 files and with regards to the kinds of compression that that gentleman was displaying in the uh, 
in the video. So the whole thing is odd and ironic to me. And yes, of course, it has affected the way I work because I have to make music that sounds something like what people who buy records today listen to. Yeah. On, on a sonic level. On a sonic level, at least. To some degree, if you're designing a sound system for a car or whatever, you're going to listen to all the current music and you're going to design that system to make that music sound good. So the actual equipment that people are listening to on is going to be influenced by the way people like us are mixing music and it's going to spiral back on itself and, you know, it's the problem can only get worse, can't it? Well, maybe. It's an interesting social phenomenon to observe how, quote, what sounds good, unquote, uh, changes over time with regards to the listening habits. Uh, I think it kind of dovetails to what you were saying. I was in a live show last night in New York City at the Nokia Theater, uh, and there was so much low bottom in that main system that I felt that the sound guy was fighting to regain the mid-range the entire night because the bottom had just completely obscured it. It had so much energy below 80 cycles. And I suppose this is what people want to hear now. I'm not sure if it's 20 years of boom boxes and increased bass frequencies and the loudest button taken to an exponential level culturally or what it is, but uh, it's interesting to me because I would hate to have to mix to that. I couldn't understand why they had so much bottom in that room. Well, I wonder, I mean, I suppose the, the other thing is, is, you know, we've kind of been through a very strong kind of club culture for like maybe 15, 20 years. So we're used to hearing kind of loud, pumping music, and it kind of, it almost feels like we don't get the same vibe. We don't get the adrenaline unless it has that an element to that. Even if we're listening to it on our, I don't know, mobile phone or or, or at home on a boombox or whatever, maybe that's what seems to be trying to be emulated. And all of this stuff is a kind of spin-off for that because obviously some music is not designed to be played in the club, so it therefore doesn't really need to have that treatment. Yeah, I think I think it's interesting what you're saying about what uses you know, music are used for and. For example, this exam- the, the demonstration on the YouTube video sounded better the second time round down my Skype phone. Okay, but obviously when I listened to it on my on my computer, it sounded better the first time round without that heavy limiting. Right. And right. and what you're saying about you know certain for certain uses you want it to be limited, you want it to be the dynamic range to be reduced, and the distortion isn't an issue. But for other uses, say you know a production CD, you don't want that to be the case, or certainly not too much. Sure. And I think you've got, you've got a major problem at the moment whereby record companies or releases are getting encoded off those heavily limited CD releases. Maybe. Whereas what they should be doing is encoding them off a, a previous generation of the master. Right, pre-master. Which hasn't, been treated, yeah, which hasn't been treated in that way. If, you know, if what you're saying is, is, is true, which I think it, is, it probably is, that there should be more than one option to people. I think that the... the I mean, I tend to treat everything that way when I master it anyway. And I think that there's a tendency to want to do that to make your... I mean, even if you're mastering a demo, you want the demo to sound as impressive as someone's record, so you tend to stick a bit of that on. A bit of, like, L2 or whatever. Yeah, you it's know, funny, though, isn't it? I mean, it... are in Logic or whatever. It kind of goes on at the end, and I don't actually ever make a version that doesn't have it, I hate to say, yeah. so... Yeah. I've been bitten by that bug. What I've taken to doing is delivering people versions that have been slammed to, to listen to, and then always deliver them the version with nothing on it at all for the final master. Right. So they can hear what it's like when it's been squashed, but, but, they, but they're getting a version that hasn't been squashed, and they can do their own squashing and screw it up as much as they like in their own well, way. Well, that's a good idea, I suppose. I mean, then at least they've got the option. I don't know. Dave, what do you think? I mean, is it kind of... Is it is it gone too far, or is it? Do we like it? I think if you ask most kids, they like it. Mm. It's weird, you know. It reminds me of that whole kind of drummer drum machine situation in the eighties. You know, people I play older tracks to kids, and they'd be like, "Yeah, but it's it's out of time." And it's kind of <laughs> the same here, you know, with sort of dynamic range. Everybody wants everything kind of in your face. Yeah, it's too quiet. But it's horses for courses, isn't it? Yeah, I would just wonder what what course and what horse it is that doesn't require that. I mean, it's I mean, I guess classical and that sort of thing. I mean, because that's the thing I've noticed. I put a load of stuff um, via uh, on, on my iTunes library and a, a lot of classical stuff as well. And at the moment, it's going through my TV because I'm still trying to figure out what kind of set of speakers to go through. And uh, trying to listen to classical music is a nightmare because you've got to turn up the TV so loud to get yeah. 
the dynamic range, you know, to be able to hear the quiet bits effectively. That uh, when you, if you accidentally switch inputs and go back to kind of the satellite channel, it sort of blows everything up. You know, mm. I've been going back listening to a lot of um, acoustic music, you know, John Martin stuff like that recently, and uh, I just love all that light and shade in it and real subtleties. Mm. But I am an old git. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's a well worth checking out, though. I mean, you can kind of see. I mean, the one thing I will say is uh, his voice was a bit quiet <laughs> 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 overall. But um, yeah, you could you can see what he's getting at, and it's a great illustration. So, um, I, oh, what was oh, that? What was that? I don't know. It sounded like um, a tombstone being moved across a coffin. Perhaps not one of yours, was it, Mark? <laughs> it wasn't one of mine. I've got one lined up here. I've got this one here ready to go. Oh, my goodness. Maybe we should sell that as a Sonic State ringtone, eh? <laughs> well, uh, anyway, so uh, loud equals bad uh, as the head of that topic, and um, there's nothing else to say about it apart from it's one bloke who's put... I, I guess he might be a master grinder. He sounds like a kind of academic or somebody who's kind of quite clued up about these things and demonstrates very ably the uh, the the whys and wherefores of turning things up and um, reducing dynamic range. The new N6 music production synthesizer from the 61 note portable synthesizer with incredible sonic power based on motive tone generation real-time audio control usb connectivity and computer integration bundled with qs le audio and midi sequencing software to create produce perform with the affordable and versatile m6 music production synthesizer from www.mm6music.co.uk that was an ad there for the Yamaha Minimo synth, which is driven by a Motif engine. It's one of the lower price synths that they make, and it's a jolly good value for money, so I'm told. Uh, and they sponsor the podcast, so if you want to make us look good and you're interested in their products, or either of the above, go visit www.mm6music.co.uk. The top 10 heads-up techno glasses. Now, um, what these are, basically, mm-hmm. are like a pair of glasses with small LCD screens, or large, depending on the... the the, uh, the sort they are, in front of your eyes that you can watch TV on. And they kind of equate to, I mean, it's quite interesting because they go from a couple of hundred bucks up to sort of $800 or $900 or more. And um, they equate to kind of things like, you know, looking at a 60-inch t- uh, cinema screen from a distance of three metres or a 42-inch from two metres. You know, that, that's how they measure what it actually looks like. And um, But I was thinking it would be kind of quite a cool... Um, Thing to try out. Anyone ever tried anything like this? No, no. I've wanted one for years. I, I, wanted, I used to take this big rack on tour, and it had various screens and computers and things in it. And I always thought that this would be a much better solution to um, having a. Like, this was before LCDs, so uh, it was a yeah, vacuum tube in a <laughs> you know in a rack, and it was going on and off the back of trucks. And inevitably, you know, Sony Trinitron monitors break eventually, so. I always thought this was a good idea, and I sort of looked at various different ones. But these these look really cool. It just seems like if you had that and like a PDA, then presumably the resolution, you know, you wouldn't have to have kind of um, fearsome. Well, you'd still need the graphics power, but you wouldn't need these giant LCDs. You could just slip these on, and, and you you'd eventually have have you know a, a fairly enormous um, bit of screen real estate in front of you without having to kind of you know with just a pair of glasses. I thought that was kind of quite cool. You could snap the um, lid off your G4 and throw it away. It'd be less to carry. Well, that's and true. Plug, plug a set of these in the side of, you know, in your laptop. You know, and, and a lot of these glasses were, they're not total wraparounds. I mean, there are a couple of things which we'll move on to, which I thought were hilarious. But they're, they're kind of quite slim, so they're not totally obscuring your eyes. So you can choose to look at them and you can look up and away. But the one thing I thought was particularly interesting was uh, there's this uh, one from Lightview, which is a, um Israeli company. I think it's still vaporware, but it says... The Lightview eyewear has been especially designed to minimise the effects of cyber stress, which means there will be no dizziness or nausea. <laughs> and I was kind of thinking, so that is that what happens when you wear these things? I mean, is that kind of a side effect? Because that doesn't sound too too promising, does it? Really? Any of you guys ever use, ever used the virtual reality head the virtuality headsets a few years ago? Probably about ten years ago. No, they're the same headsets. sort of thing, presumably. Yeah, almost a bit more basic visually, but. That's what it reminded me of. But there's a bomb pair on there which were just like a pair of glasses with a tiny little chip on the side. Oh, like a heads-up display for auto-cue kind of styly. 
that was great. I mean, there's just you wouldn't know you were wearing them, you know. I mean, well, no one else would sort of look at you weirdly. I mean, some of them look a bit crazy. I thought the uh, I thought the best one had to be Toshiba's 360 degree head mounted display, which basically was of the size of well, it looked like a space hopper. I'd say about the size of a space hopper <laughs> on the head, and there was it, what looked like a sort of small oriental girl uh, with a keyboard in front of her, and this enormous kind of it's like a space helmet. Is that the full face helmet? Full face helmet, 360 hey. degree head mounted display, and it weighs three kilograms. So it's not quite the same as a pair of glasses, but I thought that was the most ridiculous one on there. But I imagine the experience is rather immersive. But um, you could, you, you could, can you use this sort of thing for programming? Would it, would it be, would it make sense, or would it just be, would it be a bit too, I don't know, a bit too weird, a bit too, a bit too immersive? I think the main problem is with programming that if you are programming with someone, they tend to look over your shoulder and point to the screen and say, "Can you move this bit here and this yeah, bit here? Yeah, can true. you cut that bit?" And blah blah blah, and it sort of stops them from being able to do that. So I. Think it probably wouldn't work, but I imagine something like uh, Second Life in it might be a bit of a of a um, fulsome experience. Oh yeah, I hadn't thought of that. I mean, because presumably, if it's got two screens, I mean, they may get to the point where they can actually make those slightly stereoscopic, so you get a bit of depth as well to it. What about video conferencing? I don't know. Oh, it would be pretty. You'd, you'd have to have a camera in it, which would be kind of weird because you'd have a sort of your face would be like two centimeters away from the camera, which might look strange. Have to be very yeah. wide angle, and you'd look kind of like a potato. <laughs> Basically, means the whole family can sit and watch different TV programs at the same time, but be in the same room. So. Yeah, Dave, are you, you're a man who's got a lot of LCD TVs. Wouldn't you rather have a pair of these? Yep, yep. <laughs> I'd rather have a couple of those Toshibas. You can imagine that, right, kids? We're going to watch TV tonight. Put this on <laughs> and shut up. Well, if you got, a, you could, maybe they do an even bigger one that you can get two people in. Yes, yes. Does your video iPod have a uh, video out? Yeah, I mean, most of these are st- uh, um, work with video iPods, laptops, uh, cell phones, um, you know, multimedia, anything with a video out, basically. I actually have some con- possibly old-fashioned concerns about this. I don't think our eyes are well-trained to operate at these focal lengths. And while I'm not as concerned about nausea and disorientation and those kinds of things that we were talking about earlier... I really can't imagine that this is any good for your eyes. But doesn't it fool? Isn't there a kind of? Doesn't it fool you? I mean, or, or does the things just have to be that far away? Otherwise, because I mean, I suppose your eyes are going to be at maximum macro. Otherwise, aren't they? Yeah, maybe you're right. You're pushing the muscle system around your eyes into places it was never practiced to go. You've got somewhere between I don't know what fifteen and a hundred years of experience looking at things a certain way, and when they shorten the focal length to this kind of distance. I wonder to what extent it effectively simulates a more distant viewing perspective and the effect that could have on the muscles of your eyes. Mm, yeah, that's an interesting point. Not to mention everything else. I, I used to program using an Atari and sit about a foot in front of it. And then whenever I went shopping afterwards, I was completely unable to have any sense of um, distance of, of anything. So I'd be wandering around the shop knocking like stacks of beans over and everything it's sort of like very comedy but I, and I just felt horribly disoriented and you know people seemed weird and everything so there have been studies haven't there with some a lot of virtual reality headsets where they've caused sort of nausea and dizziness and stuff like that all right well um, yeah I, I was just surprised at how cheap these things were I mean I thought they were kind of still you know thousands and thousands of dollars but you know they don't see I mind you I think rich you're probably right I don't know if I was spending 250 bucks on a pair of glasses is going to get me uh, much um, health insurance when my eyes fall out. But I'd been forgotten, I'd go. I'd been married a long time ago. Where did you come from? Where did you go? Where did you come from, Cotton Eye Joe? But I'd been forgotten, I'd go. I'd been married a long time ago. Where did you come from? Where did you go? Where did you come from, Cotton Eye Joe? That's right, folks. It's Cotton Eye Joe. It's the Rednecks who are, uh, I'm told, I think they're Swedish, if I'm right. And Dave's. Beers, you found this item. How did that pop up into your in-tray? John Arcoda sends us loads of useless information during the day, and this was one of them. Essentially, rednecks are, they're kind of a a pop novelty act, I guess. I mean, would be fair to say, wouldn't it? And uh, they kind of do, um, it's like tub-thumping kind of country sort of fiddle type music, and it's it's all very pastiche, obviously. Kind of mixed with a kind of European house ethic, and... uh, They've had a variety of hits all over the place. And if you look at the website, there's all sorts of stuff. But um, basically, it's up for sale. It's on eBay. 
It's a $1.5 million starting price, and what you get is the music, the trademark, the band, the tour, the record deals, the website, the record releases, the plans, the contacts, the contracts, the styling, the catalogue, all back catalogue, and, of course, the opportunities, the future. That's that. I'm reading the sales blurb there, obviously. They're selling the whole thing as a going concern, um, and it's just kind of quite an interesting concept because, I, I mean, how would you... I'm thinking, okay, I dropped my $1.5 million. I mean, I did check the eBay auction. Anyone else see that since... Probably this no morning bids. there's no bids, and I don't know how long it's been up there because this story's been kicking around a little while. Five days left. Going. Five days left. They've had no bids, yeah. um, but there is a twenty-five thousand dollar reward if anybody generates a sales lead. <laughs> As I read this bit about how the potential dropper of the million and a half has, as he pleases, the right to record, release, style, tour, and manage one of the most successful party bands of our time. Whether that's arguable or not, they're being the most successful party band of our time. Uh, that is like indentured servitude. What if the guy who buys this thing wants them to record, you know, 18 hours a day, seven days a week, and wear, you know, uh, what, you know wear stuff they don't want to... Like, in other words, you have just signed a contract that says that somebody else is completely in control of your life. Yeah, that's kind of weird, sounds, isn't it? That sounds like S&M to me. <laughs> Maybe that's who it's going to be. Yeah, except it's with a contract. Well, I don't know. I mean, I'm sure the the finer details and finer points would have to be sort of thrashed out in a court of human rights, perhaps. But um, it's. Mm. I take your point. But it does seem like a strange kind of. It smacks of kind of, oh, we're sick of it, but we're still going to do it if you buy it. It From what I can gather, it's owned by three people, right? Ah, okay. The the question I would ask is quite simply if if it's a going concern, why are they trying to sell it? Yeah, exactly. And secondly, it's overpriced. They had the cheekiness to put a buy it now price on there. That's outrageous. I reckon they figure they can get paid to sit around for the next 10 years if they can sell it one time. But, but like I said, that bit about they can decide when you play and record and what you wear, that's a little, uh, that's a little weird to me. But yeah, it's a strange one, isn't it? I mean, I've never seen anything. Presumably, this must happen, though, because bands split, don't they? And you get bands touring with names that they own but then none of you know and then you get the original members of the band touring with another <laughs> name you know so i don't know anybody like that but yeah so if anyone fancies either uh, buying rednecks or finding themselves uh, 25 grand richer that's dollars um then they could pass on any sales leads to uh, popbandforsale.com it is in fact so if you go there all the details are up there shall we shall we go to rock school and vince clark who likes vince clark Oh, only me then. Well, ah. I, I didn't mean as a person. I mean, you know, I mean, he may be, he may not be a great person. He may be, I've never met him. But I mean, you can't deny the chap is uh, a bit of a synth, a monophonic synth, perhaps legend, and has been responsible for uh, quite a number of classic pop tastic kind of stuff. I mean, what what did it start? Out? Depeche Mode, Yazoo, Yazoo, yeah. of course, Erasure, of course. I mean, they've done pretty good. Wasn't he in Human League for about a minute as well? Don't know. Perhaps not. Via Matrix Synth, which is a, a great blog where he finds all sorts of synth trivia and interesting stuff. Um, there's a section. There was a program called Rock School in the UK, which was what? Was it just the 80s, Dave? Can you remember? Or was it 70s as well? I think it was the 80s, wasn't it? Uh, 80s, yeah. It was the 80s, yeah. and it was it was actually. I mean, it was incredible, really, because it was prime time. And what it was was there was a bass player, drummer, guitarist, and a keyboard player, and they kind of teach music from a kind of being in a band perspective. I mean, it was very straight and dry, or it seemed that way if you were in a band yourself. But, I mean, when you consider what they were trying to do and the fact that it was actually given a primetime slot, it's, it's remarkable. So, anyway, um, so Vince Clark is there just showing how he puts a song together with his little... Pro- what, did anyone recognise the programme he was using? It was the BBC B, wasn't it? The BBC B. Oh. Uh, with, this, with this Yumi 2B interface. <laughs> God. Did you use that? Uh, no, no, thank God. I think Chris did at one point, but um, no, I was FC 500 and above, basically. Ah, uh, well, the one thing, I mean, even then, back in those days, he obviously had a fair few quid and he's had a, a room full of kind of quite desirable equipment. But I have to say, uh, I, I, you can understand why he designed that sort of amazing dome-shaped um, studio, because it looked a bit like kind of the back of a shop, didn't it? There was just sort of crappy shelves and sort of white <laughs> formica, formica cupboards and MDF and stuff. It just didn't look very stylish, not for a kind of happening musician. Um, but that bit was fun. But I just thought, um, was there anything else in the US that sort of equated to rock school? I, I, I don't recall. I do recall something about 20, 25 years ago where 
I think it may even have been Herbie Hancock had a show briefly where they would kind of show you how to be in a band. But I think the only other thing I saw was, um, it, but I think, again, it was a UK thing. It was uh, Gene Simmons from Kiss, who's uh, <laughs> quite a formidable character, um, was <laughs> trying to put a band together, wasn't he? And he had kind of, they were auditions. That was called he, Rock School, wasn't it? And uh, it was quite harsh. <laughs> it, what, they weren't trying to teach him anything. I mean, although I think they didn't they go through bits where somebody would learn how to kind of rock out a bit better or play the bass a bit better or develop their sound. And, you know, that, so there was an education element. But then at the end of it, if they didn't sort of do it well enough or they sucked a little bit, Gene Simmons would just kind of give them a really hard time, hard talking to. And, uh, and then they'd be kicked out of the band and there were lots of tears and what have you. So it was, it was it, you know, it had all the usual reality TV mechanisms, but it also had a little bit of music. Um, education to it as well does anyone have any connection or know any of the people that were in the uk rock show rock, uh, rock school thing because they struck me as being a particularly uncomfortable group of people <laughs> who weren't perhaps yes. best suited for the job in hand uh, as we speak i'm looking through the rock school book oh some... yes they did a book i think i got one of those when i was a teenager and in a band <laughs> and my mum thought oh you're in a band you'd like this i'm not sure i did but well there's some pretty cool stuff in here and uh it was co-written by my old business partner, Julian Colbeck. Ah. So we've got interviews with Dave Smith, we've got Wasp in here, we've got the Prophet Five, we've got the Art Odyssey, we've got all sorts of uh, interesting uh, stuff. Have you got the names of the people who were... The, the, there was a, a, a lady guitarist, I remember. Deirdre. Uh, Deirdre. Oh, that's really wrong. <laughs> Deirdre. Was she called Deirdre Rock? Or something like that? What was her name? Deirdre Cartwright. There we go. Oh. Was the drummer's I, name Jeff someone? Yes, Jeff Nichols. Nichols. But my my favourite of all was Henry King Thumb Thomas. Oh yes, he was the bass player, wasn't he? Because yes. he used to do. I mean, I think he got the gig because he was probably the only person that from the BBC Orchestra who could play slap bass. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, nice. In fact, I, I think the piece on YouTube opens with uh, Henry King Thumb himself introducing Vince Clark and looking like a kind of rabbit caught in the headlights of the camera. Uh, and they always used to wear, wear very unsuitable... Well, it wasn't. It was very 80s stuff, wasn't it? So they had jackets with big shoulders up, but with the sleeves rolled up. Oh, perfect. Sonic State. As we know, all of MP3, which is a kind of Russian-run MP3 download site, which has a very interesting download model. You actually pay more higher-quality downloads, and they offer, in some cases, much better quality downloads, much higher bit rates than, than iTunes. But the downside is um, all of their content is uh, nicked and not paid for. They don't pay any royalties or publishing. They're just coining it in. So that's a bit of a problem, especially for um, the RIAA and uh, uh, lobbying the U.S. government, something wicked to try and get them kind of, well, I don't know. They probably want to send the, uh, the special forces in and have them kind of dispatched. Anyway, in the meantime, Virgin, who are UK ISP, who are also uh, run a record label, uh, customers of Virgin as, as their ISP, a big cable provider, are finding that um, all of MP3 is sort of unable to reach. They've just basically blocked it from all their users, um, which made me think, well, is this kind of thing ethical? Is it legal? Should they do it? What do we think? I think it's going to happen, isn't it, in the future, sooner or later? I'm interested to, I'm interested to know if an ISP, how, to what extent and how they have a right to limit the content uh, that their subscribers receive in an environment where the subscribers have limited access to choice with respect to providers. So, for example, here in the U.S., uh, cable providers seems to be one of the legal monopolies. I don't, I don't know that if that's legally what you'd call it, but there is only one cable service provider in any given area where I've lived here in the United States. There's not right. competition freely among them. So if they, as my ISP, for example, have the right to limit what I'm allowed to get on my computer or on my TV, which obviously they do, and obviously I agree to that, then I, I'm not sh I don't know. It, it seems to me that we don't have, you, you, you don't have any choice to go anywhere else, but at the same time, I think that they, implicit in their agreement with you, choose what you watch on TV, and to some extent can choose what appears on your computer. And, and why wouldn't I? I mean, it, you know, it's like the Fox Network and CBS, you know, they choose what you can watch. Say, for example, and boy, is this taking this slightly off topic, uh, in the last six months, there was a brouhaha about certain American cable providers considering running some version of Al Jazeera on their cable networks here in the United States. Okay. And um, there was a lot of uh, discussion, shall we say, uh, in some circles about it. I'm sure in the media there was. And, uh, but, you know, behind the scenes. And um, I think it was ultimately decided 
by most of them, if not all of them, that they were not going to run it because they were concerned about a backlash from their uh, viewership. Right. So it was a commercial so that's decision. Not a, yeah, it's not a legal thing. It's more of a social thing and how it relates to the way you want to have a relationship with your customer. Yeah, yeah, maybe so. But, I mean, I suppose people were speculating because Virgin are, in fact, a, a fairly large record label, even though... Uh, John, are they still actually Virgin-owned or do they sell to EMI? I can't remember. V2 is Virgin's label. Right. Virgin is owned by EMI. Okay. Hasn't, hasn't EMI just been bought by someone else as well? Oh, yeah, that was a big bit of news, Always actually. trying to sell it, aren't they? No, they have. They've, uh, is it actually happening? Who is it who bought them this time? Is it private equity? Private equity. It wasn't Bertelsmann. Um, it wasn't BMG because they were and being... it wasn't Warners. It wasn't Warners. It, it went to a, basically a, a private... Yes, that's right. I, I seem to remember seeing that. Ah, that is actually quite big news, I suppose. Uh, what do you think? Terra Firma Capital Partners. Terra Firma Capital Partners. Snappy name. So, snap. Do you think they're going to change the uh, the title of EMI to uh, what would that be? T T F C P. Hmm. Going to have to work on that logo, I think, aren't they? <laughs> Three point two billion pounds. Wow, that's a lot. So, what's that? That's nearly seven billion dollars. It's interesting what Rich was saying about the cable service in the states because it's, I think in the UK now it's all Virgin, isn't it? It used to be NTL and Telewest. I used to be a Telewest company, uh, Telewest subscriber, and now it became Virgin. I was inherited as a customer by then, and I have to say the the quality of service has dropped like a stone. Internet access at at peak times is dreadful. It's almost down to to ISDN. TV quality was pretty bad. You know that they've obviously cut some serious costs. I mean, the guy was saying to me today that. I had all the, the, the voltage that they used to drive all of these things. They've dropped the voltage because, obviously, it's cheaper. You know, they don't have to push so much current. Well, to, to get a little bit clearer about what happens here, I, for example, live 25 miles from the studio at Niles, and we have two different providers uh, for the cable Internet service. Yeah. And we pay for the same amount of money paid, I receive four times the speed, both upload and download, at work, than I do here, as I do here. Wow. Um, it, it's remarkable, the difference, and it's just that my cable provider up here has decided to clamp down the speed and sell tiered service and try to make 10 bucks more a month from their customers to provide something reasonable. You know, freedom of choice is, is probably the key word there, and, uh, and, and that, that does rather take us nicely into the last topic, which is Devo, because didn't they have a track called Freedom of Choice, or at least a lyric that was Freedom of Choice? Mm-hmm. And uh, their, their Devo are touring again after 15 years uh, out of the public eye, and um, they're, doing a, they're, they're doing Sonar in Barcelona a um, couple of weeks from now, and then they're coming to the UK, then they're doing Italy, so it's like, I can't remember how many dates, it's like eight or ten dates. Anybody fans of Devo? I am. I am. Can I do my Devo song? Oh, yeah, go on. This is Devo's original track. And I needed some different chords, so I retuned it so it then sounded like this. I've taken the whole intro from another famous record from the late 70s um, and then I put a verse over it like this. A hundred things won't change the feeling that you die of misadventure A character of your imagination And then without changing the backing at all, so I've still got all those Devo things running, I wrote um, another set of chords that kind of worked with them and... I came up with a chorus that does this. The only problem is now, obviously, Mark, when you go to the um, when you get taken to court for breaching all those copyrights, that there's going to be a record of of exactly how you did it. So no matter what you say in your defence, it's going to be there. But yeah, that's pretty cool. I, what, which I Devo track was that? Because I'm not familiar with. I know kind of Whip It and Satisfaction and that kind of stuff. I think it's called Gut Feeling, isn't it? I, I never saw them live. Did it, did anyone see them live the first time around? 
No, I so never young. saw them. In the, I never saw them in the flesh, but I saw them on television, and it looked amazing. And yes, I would go in a heartbeat to see Devo. I think very highly of the Mother's Boss and uh, all of those guys, and just would love to see them. They're touring. Um, I think we got a news item, and I'll put that in the show notes so you can see all the stuff. Um, and I don't. Does anyone know what synths they use? Because was their first kind of debut album. It was produced by Eno, wasn't it? Yeah. It would have been an AKS synth then, wouldn't it? You think so? About that Almost time. Almost definitely. Almost definitely, or a VCS. Well, there was that dun 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 dun. Yeah, of. I think they were. I think they were into mini mogs uh, in the beginning. That wasn't there. I remember there was a video of them um, with, and they had a kind of an organ of some sort. I don't know if it was a Farfisa or one of those mm-hmm. Ita- big Italian kind of synth stroke organ type devices. <laughs> don't remember which one, but I'm pretty sure. But we shall find out. I mean, hopefully, like I say, we're going to try and get an interview with them. Um, although at the moment, it's looking a little bit... They're, they're expecting us to do a six-hour round trip so we can have 15 minutes with the band. And now it's kind of like, you know, <laughs> if they were currently ch- topping the charts, I would understand. But not having been on the road for 15 years or released a record, you kind of think, <laughs> perhaps this will end up on the cutting room floor because it will lessen my chances of getting even 15 minutes with the band. <laughs> uh, go on, go for it, Nick. Go on, get in there. So, yeah, a discussion we've got to have. But I'm sure they're, they're great guys and, you know. But um, I think we've actually made it to the end of it. So we're, we're there. Well done, everybody. Uh, episode 47, it's a wrap. So uh, I'd just like to say thank you very much for joining us. Um, Dave Spears from G4 Software. Thank you. Uh, good luck with the launch of the Mini Monster Melaman Universal Binary. We'll be watching the site. Send us a press release and we'll write some news. Marvellous, thank you. And also John Musgrave uh, from up there near London in the UK. In Ta- London, yes. Taking, taking a Sunny break London. from... Are you still remixing? Yeah. Oh, well. It's worth, yeah. If you've got the work, stick to it. But on a faster computer now. Hey, well, congratulations. Hey. I hope you enjoy your Intel-based Experience. Mac madness. And Richard Hilton from uh, sunny Connecticut, I hope. Yes, indeed, and a pleasure as always. Good to have you. I'm fresh back from, was it Honolulu you were playing? Just, Waikiki Beach. Waikiki Beach. He's, been, he's just back from a gig with, with Sheik on Waikiki Beach. How, how cosmic is that? And, of course, Mark Tinley, once again, thank you very much for joining us. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> That'll do. Hey, it's a new, a new phrase. Brilliant. Thanks, guys. And of course, don't forget, this week is the final version of our Top 20's Greatest Synths episode. We've made it through to the countdown, and the number one spot is... No, you're just going to have to go and check it out. Just go to www.sonicstate.com forward slash top 20, and you'll find the entire series there just waiting for you. Sonic State. Sonic State.